unser Wunsch und Wille, dass dieser Staat und dieses Reich bestehen sollen in den kommenden Jahrtausenden. Wir können glücklich sein zu wissen, dass diese Zukunft restlos Talking about the air war over Europe now. There's this massive bombing campaign by the Eighth Air Force, and suddenly these new wizards, as they were called, appeared. They were jet fighters from Nazi Germany that were 150 miles per hour faster than our fastest fighters. Kind of your, your stereotypical technological leap, although we were on the wrong side that time. That was a cause of great concern for the Army Air Corps leadership because this represented a, a technology shift that we had no answer for. Literally would outrun our P-51 Mustang, our P-38 Lightning, and, and there was really not much we could do about it. The jet fighter we had developed before this was no faster than propeller-powered airplanes, so it was going to require a different thought mechanism. And Kelly saw this as an ideal opportunity to apply his experimental shop. Kelly Johnson had, for a number of years, been designing airplanes that used jet engines. And so he went out and, and ended up getting a contract. For the XP-80 to, to design and build this airplane in 180 days. But when he brought the contract back to Burbank at the time, Lockheed leadership said, well, congratulations, but we're in the middle of war production, so. We cannot disrupt wartime production. We're building B-17s under license of, of Boeing. Um, we've got P-38s in production and other aircraft. We don't have room for you, so they gave him a circus tent. So you may have recognized one of these voices as Steve Justice from our last episode. The other is Renee Passman. She's a director of several secret programs here at the Skunk Works and took over the position Steve held before his retirement in 2017. When Renee hired on, she actually worked for Steve on several programs. Then the table was turned when Renee became the program director. Steve worked for her during his last few months of working at the Skunk Works. Now back to World War II. Imagine being a young American aeronautical engineer in the 40s. The Germans are using jet technology in combat, and the United States military is frantic for a jet fighter of their own that can counter this new threat. You have this idea, a secret organization hidden within a large aeronautics company. It might not be fully supported by management, and there's a high probability of failure. But if it worked, you would be the creator of America's first true combat-ready jet fighter. Essentially, the admonition from Cortland Gross was no people, no facilities, no equipment. Good luck. So Kelly chose a location far south in one of the plants so he'd be out of the way, handpicked a very small team. They were given the admonition to get out of any carpools that they were in. They were not allowed to tell anyone what they were doing. It was absolute secrecy. They couldn't tell their families, uh, couldn't tell friends at work. And, and Kelly kind of had an advantage in that time. By the time this came along, Lockheed and, and Vega 
which was kind of a separate company but operating together with Lockheed, employed nearly 90,000 people. And so hiding in that mass was, was relatively easy. So down by the wind tunnel at the south end of the plant, he took torn down crates from the right cyclone engines for the B-17 to build walls, got what, what's often referred to as a circus tent. It's, it's more like a, a big heavy canvas cover to create the roof. So I want you to think about what that environment must have been like on the inside on a sunny Burbank day. You know, it was gonna be hot on the inside. Across the railroad tracks uh, was a plastics factory, and this is before you had any emission controls. And there was these terrible putrid smells that came out of the place. Irv Culver was one of the engineers on the program, and he was a, a big fan of the comic Little Abner. In the Little Abner cartoon, there was this house that sat up on this hill. It was a, a still kind of, and it was called the Skonk Works, S-K-O-N-K. And this brew called Kickaboo Joy Juice was manufactured there. But people really didn't know much about it. It was very secretive as to what went on and what the ingredients were. All kinds of nasty smells came out of it. I think one of the ingredients in the Joy Juice was actually skunks. You know, we're looking around, realizing what the environment was like, picked up the phone one day and said, Skunk works. It's just kind of a joke. Kelly, Kelly did not find it amusing. Legend has it that Kelly fired him but told him he needed to be back at work the next day. And apparently that happened a lot. You know, in, in his frustration with people, he had, he had apparently a pretty bad temper. And the name stuck. Well, the name stuck well enough that Lockheed was contacted by Al Cap the author of the Little Abner cartoon explained to him that the Skunk Works was a copyrighted name. So they changed the O to a U. So we were now Skunk Works and developed a little mascot to go with it and uh, began a legacy. It's actually funny, a lot of the early airplanes like the XP-80 and others actually also had nicknames that came from the cartoon strip. There's a comment attributed to a number of people that Kelly Johnson could, you know, see the air and how it will go around the airplane. If you go look at the original sketches of things like the, the P-38 and other airplanes, you can, you can see that right from the beginning he just had a, a really good understanding of how he wanted the airplane to be laid out. That, that wasn't a lot of analysis or anything else. That was just innate understanding that he had. Um, and that got translated as, oh yeah, you can see the air move around the airplane. Kelly had always had the vision of a streamlined organization to create radical new products very quickly. And as he formulated what the requirements would be for this workshop, he obviously must have seen shortfalls in communication and decision making because he structured this organization to place everybody close together for all aspects of airplane design. Kelly's rules for the Skunk Works as we know them today evolved from the rules of the experimental shop. And they're still applicable today. There's a few key ones in there. Rule number one, when you digest it down from Kelly's long sentences, one strong knowledgeable leader. Kelly had the ability to understand it in great detail 
the technical aspects, the engineering aspects of airplane design, and to the same depth and breadth, what it took to define a program and manage a program. That full breadth of understanding to ask questions, it is a key to Skunk Works successes. If you think about the Skunk Works from a leadership perspective, for most of the history, there's, there's only been, I'm going to miscount and miss somebody, but you know, five or six people in charge of the Skunk Works for usually fairly big chunks of time. There's been a very stable leadership, which I think is one of the reasons that that culture has really been allowed to take root. You know, a leadership approach that focuses on a small empowered team, which I think, you know, I'm not sure Kelly Johnson would use these words, but today we would say that really empowers people. Once people feel that their leadership supports them in that, they become more comfortable, they're more willing to take risks, they're more willing to learn, encourage conversation, encourage different opinions. Even as something as complex as the 117, there was a very short set of requirements. And if whatever thing you came up with, if it didn't somehow contribute to one of those requirements, then it wasn't going on the airplane. It's that focus on what is the end goal, everything having to buy its way on, not just on the airplane, frankly, but also onto the program. You know, that's one of the reasons why even with a small empowered team, it's important to have a strong program manager that has control of their program to keep that focus. Kelly never seemed to ask his team, what does it take to do something? His team always seemed to step in and just make it happen. In an interview with Kelly, after the long after the Blackbird had been flying, somebody asked him how hard the problem was. And he said, you know what? If we had known how hard it was going to be to do, we probably wouldn't have tried. There's a lot in that statement because they knew they were in for a massive challenge on every front. Virtually everything for the airplane was going to have to be invented. They knew that on the front end. And yet... You didn't see any deterrence. You didn't see any kind of fear. Uh, you just saw them jump in and solve the problem. It was the you know, ultimate manifestation of assume it can be done. I got a chance to talk to some members of his family about what he was like outside the place. And he, he had a sense of humor, it was kind of dry. Um, but what was really interesting to me was how they described Kelly's shop. They said that all the nuts and bolts and screws were all sorted um, in separate baby food jars, all labeled. There was a materials list that showed what inventory he had. Um, just this incredible level of attention to detail that you saw him have at work, which was diving into the technical problem, but also then managing the problem. And then his just deep understanding of, of physics and engineering and material sciences was used on projects around the house. The, it, his family member described this bridge that was built on the property over this small river, large creek that flowed across it. And Kelly, Kelly sent a note to the U.S. government explaining that he had designed the bridge to where 
missile trucks could drive over it, and he showed the stress analysis to prove that it could handle the loads as well as that the geometry was compatible with the trucks that would drive across it. And so this shows a level of, of we'll call it systems integration. He applied that at home as well as he did at work. A bunch of years ago, I was watching a TV program on new teaching techniques. It was like fifth or sixth grade she was teaching. Use this one experiment, what I call now the, the ship's test. So I, I incorporated it into my briefings. Um, I thought it was an excellent way to, to show people that they needed to think differently, to think outside the lines, to not add rules that were not there. And over the course of briefing and everything from elementary school through high school, college, and out into civic groups, little, little kids, elementary school kids flooded you with answers, most of which were irrelevant. The middle school kids got it in about 15 or 20 seconds. High school kids were too cool to answer. College kids were looking for the trick in it. And they, they wanted to make sure that they weren't gonna give the wrong answer and appear stupid to their peers. So you, you could see them really churning on it. And adults out in the civic groups would just sit there and stare at you. And it, again, the bottom line is, don't add rules that are not there. So let's go through the, the ship's test. And this is one where you get to grade yourself. Name different kinds of ships. If you thought of aircraft carrier, ocean liner, rowboat, destroyer, canoe, congratulations. You're a really well-educated adult. Give yourself an F. If you thought of submarine, give yourself a D. I did not ask you to name things that float on water. I asked you to name different kinds of ships. If you thought of airship, give yourself a C. It has nothing to do with water even. If you thought of spaceship, give yourself a B. Um, it's, not, it's not even buoyant, it's not even floating. And if you thought of friendship, ownership, or relationship, give yourself an A. But all too often we'll hear the question, name a ship, and you find it as something that floats on water. You added rules that I did not add. You added rules that I did not impose. You added them artificially, and by doing so, you constrained the design space. And for breakthroughs to happen, for new ideas to happen, you cannot allow artificial rules to be there. I failed the ship's test. I mean, when, when I saw it on television, I was the classic adult in it. And one of the things I have to tell myself, I have to remind myself of that example, and I have to be very conscious of doing that. And then I have to find ways to, to test my teams. And you've got to challenge them in a way that allows them the ability to think very, very, very freely. And the biggest trick there is making sure that you're not artificially adding rules. second rule that sticks out in my mind is thoroughly documenting work. The skunks, the, the skunk grandfathers, wrote reports that just put us to shame. They, they had full text with embedded figures, and they did complete analysis of what the data meant, drew conclusions, even under the huge schedule pressures that they had, wrote these incredible reports. Some of the reports on the Blackbird 
are so detailed about the operation of inlets and nozzles and the propulsion system and the aerodynamics of Mach 3 flight, things that worked as predicted, things that didn't work as predicted. First of all, it's a, a tremendous lesson. But second, when we were challenged with creating the Rattler's Mach 3 cruise missile, we were able to go in and look at that data, and it saved us in testing and analysis because some of the answers were right there for us. And so that investment in the Blackbird in the late 1950s and early 1960s paid tremendous benefit for us in the early 2000s. In this next section, you'll hear Renee make several references to the customer. It's very common for skunks, as we like to call ourselves, to not only have to stay quiet about the program we're working, but also who we're working for. So instead of saying the CIA or Air Force or Department of Defense, we say the customer. So I think one of the things from a skunker's culture perspective is a tolerance for risk. When Ford was busy building the Model T, you know, the horse and carriage companies had lots of data that said how the customers really, really wanted, what they really wanted was a faster horse and a better carriage. And so, you know, forget what Henry Ford is doing with that crazy car business. What the, what the customer, what our survey says yeah. is we should build a better horse and carriage. And so I always challenge the team of like, how, how are you sure that you are not the horse and carriage company in this situation when you tell me that what the customer really wants is this thing we already have. There is no such thing as a zero risk you know, approach to what it is we do. And so you have to take risks. Being comfortable doing that, being prepared to do that, not getting paralyzed by having to do analysis until you're 100% sure, but going with the 80% answer, it shows itself as a, a comfort level with uncertainty, not knowing everything before you start. And so I think there is a, a, a higher tolerance for risk. What I will say is, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, well, the Skunk Works, you just accept all sorts of risks. And one of the other tenets of the Skunk Works is things like one miracle per program, right? You know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And just because you think you can't do something doesn't mean it's impossible. Whether you go back to something that is as exotic looking as an SR-71, I mean there was huge risk on that program in terms of the speeds and the engines and the fuel and the materials, but when you look underneath the skin and how is the airplane actually put together, it's a very traditional airframe structure. And so that's an example of where there were certain areas where there had to be lots of risk taken and then smartly people decided that other areas we were going to take less risk. One example that we can talk about out in the open is a program from a few years ago called Advanced Cargo Composite Aircraft, ACA. And that was a really interesting program because the customer at the time wanted to build a large composite structure. But as sometimes happens, customer had wanted to do a lot more work than they potentially had money for. It was actually funny because the customer originally told us, told Lockheed Skunk Works, that, well, you guys can bid, but you're going to be too expensive. So, because we, we really think that we need something small and innovative to, you know, do this. But what the team did was come up with a completely different way 
of demonstrating this technology. And rather than building an entire new airplane, which would have been very expensive, uh, they came up with the idea to take an existing airplane, a, a Jodet uh, 328J, chop off the nose, take off the wing, and rebuild the fuselage to demonstrate these advanced composite materials, and also rebuild the tails, you know, stick everything back together and go fly. And so in a very short period of time, much shorter than, than anything that they could have done if they'd built it from scratch, if you will, they were able to show all of the key technology demonstrations that the customer wanted to see, you know, rather than having a, a fuselage that had hundreds of different parts. It was basically an upper shell, a lower shell, and structural frames to carry the landing gear and the, the wing loads. And so that was a great example of how thinking through the problem in a different way and, and really staying focused on the end goal. Where are we taking the risk and therefore where in other areas are we not going to take risk to deliver a capability that even the customer didn't think that we could do. Kelly believed in reward mechanisms. I remember in, in one page of the XP80 log, he says, you know, if you guys can make this milestone for the production bird, you can come out and see the prototype fly at Edwards Air Force Base. Imagine what it would be like to see America's first jet fighter, real jet fighter fly. And if I remember correctly, they had an airplane ready to go at 143 days. And I think about that today, you know, less than six months to create an airplane that was going to fly as fast as a P-38 in a dive. And a P-38 in a dive was hitting such aerodynamic problems that it, it couldn't pull out of the dive. It was hitting these effects of sonic flow around the airplane. And now you're going to be designing an airplane that, that did that in level flight. You didn't have a propeller anymore. You had a jet engine that had to draw air through intakes and send that exhaust gas very efficiently out through a nozzle. And, and they created that masterpiece in literally the blink of an eye. And while only a few production jets, I think it was four production P-80s made it to Europe, the XP-80As allowed the United States Army Air Corps to develop anti-jet tactics to deal with the German jet fighters. As you can imagine, security has always been a top priority at the Skunk Works, but it goes beyond engineers with top-secret security clearances working behind locked doors. The, the camouflage over the Lockheed plant and, and quite honestly, others in Southern California, came from the desire to protect the plant from possible enemy attacks. There had been some isolated cases of Japanese submarine firing some artillery shells. The, the fear was a bomber flying overhead and, and dropping bombs on the factory. The two largest programs being protected by the camouflage were the B-17 production and the P-38 production. But you can't think of it as just the factory where the airplane itself was built. Parts of the airplanes were built all throughout the factories. And so what, what better way to avoid being bombed than to appear like a neighborhood, a, a target that has no value? They created the idea for this neighborhood that would be suspended above the plant 
with homes and shrubberies and sidewalks and, and streets to make any high-altitude airplane think that it was just a, a neighborhood. One of the things that was interesting is the houses were subscale. They weren't full scale. That saved on cost. And from altitude, the airplanes wouldn't be able to tell anyway. But there's some photographs of guys standing up on the netting uh, next to the houses, and they're like as tall as the houses are. One of the guys that was working in Burbank during World War II told me that a portion of the netting, at least where he worked, had come from a chicken farm. It had been something had been laid down on the ground to kind of keep dirt and dust down, kind of a burlap-like, a, a loose weave fabric. And uh, chickens had roamed all over it and left their gifts behind. And so that fabric was put up, you know, it existed. You didn't want to have to go build something if you didn't have to. Resources were in tight supply in, in World War II, and that was, was put up on poles above the plant. And the guy said the aroma from that, uh, the little chicken gifts and other things during the summer was a, a particularly nasty thing to, to suffer. I found one photograph that was fascinating to me because they had painted this intricate neighborhood on the runways and taxiways. And when I was learning to fly, I remember that when you would land or take off, the stripes down the side of the runway and the center line of the runway gave you an idea of your heading, your speed, your attitude, and to, to deny a pilot that and instead have flat houses and flat driveways and sidewalks and streets flashing underneath you as you try to land must have just caused a tremendous amount of confusion inside the brain. I'm sure that these pilots must have flown a lot of practice approaches to get an idea of what it felt like to, to land on something that wasn't marked like a conventional runway. In, in, in the hallways of these white noise generators, just this and I'm, I'm deaf in one ear, so it made it very difficult to hear people. It just, it just had this way of drowning out voices. And I, I get why you do that. You don't want possible conversations to come through a wall. But I remember this, this one story down in Burbank. Uh, we were working in Building 322, and we were one of the only programs in that building. So during lunch and stuff, we'd roam around and see if we could see what else was in the building. It was a bunch of empty rooms, but there was this one door that was locked. And uh, we never knew what it was. When we'd be up working in the engineering bay, I, I remember I was, I was sitting there working, and I had this tune in my head. And it was raindrops keep falling on my head. Raindrops keep falling. You know, that, you know why? I, I mean, I'm more into to rock and metal and that kind of stuff, so why, why is that tune in my head? And, and while, it was, while it was playing in my head, one of my buddies started whistling that tune. And I, hey, where, where did you get that? And he goes, well, it's just kind of in my head. And I thought that was really strange. But I didn't think anything more about it. And a, a, a few months later, they were doing a security inspection of the building. And so they had to be able to go into all the rooms. We had to shut everything down, lock everything up, you know, so they could come in. And they were kind of scattered throughout the building. And so we decided we'd go follow these guys around to see what they found. And so they went up to this one door that was always locked. And so they had the key and they opened it, and inside there was an 8-track player. 
And plugged into there were these show two things, including raindrops keep falling on my head. And it was the music that was being piped into the walls around, instead of white noise, they were using music inside the walls. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, and it's kind of like, okay, how malleable is the brain to these things that you don't consciously detect and shaping what your thoughts are? That was, that was kind of mind-blowing to me. Folklore and stories are constantly shared among employees surrounding the programs we may or may not be working on. But there's also folklore surrounding a topic that no one seems to know the answer to. In creating the skunk logo, I've heard two, two possible stories, and I do not know which one is real. When I was working down in Burbank, I asked that exact question. And some of the grandfathers of the skunk works told me that it was a secretary that had drawn it. Uh, there were some other people that said it was somebody at Disney that drew it. And, and that's kind of believable because there was a relationship between Disney and the, the Lockheed Corporation. Um, they created wartime posters that, that had Lockheed aircraft in them. Uh, they created advertisements for Lockheed. Uh, and I, I heard that they were part of designing the camouflage that covered uh, the plant and portions of Burbank Airport. So there was an existing relationship there, so it's, it's believable. And when you look at the proportions of the skunk, it, it follows some of the proportions of some of the characters from Disney in that era. So I'll let you decide which one you want it to be. When you think about it, right, the past 75 years, think about how the world has changed. <laughs> you know, when you look at, at the pilot handbooks of the P-80, uh, when it first went out into the field, there's, there's drawings to remind the pilots that there isn't a, a propeller on the airplane, and so therefore the airplane handles differently on the ground. And then you think through the whole history of the Skunk Works over the 75 years and all the changes that happened, you know, the growth of stealth, uh, the altitude of the U-2, the speed of the SR-71, or even, we don't talk about it that often, but things like compact fusion, where you're talking about things that are very, very high risk. We still aren't entirely sure whether it works or not, but if it does work, you know, you're basically talking about a, a change in, in the world that is even greater than anything that happened between going from a propeller to a, to a jet engine. You know, it's, it's funny. So we get a lot of people that come to the Skunk Works from the outside. We obviously have a lot of people who come out of the military. And uh, I think one, one story that somebody told once to best describe, you know, why the Skunk Works is different, not just from, from where he came from in the military, but even other parts of Lockheed Martin. He was like, you know, when in other places, when, when your boss tells you something, people go do it. At the Skunk Works, when your boss tells you something, it's, it's the start of a discussion. Even the name Skunk Works, when, uh, when the guys in the circus tent started answering the phone with Skunk Works, Kelly Johnson told them they were fired and <laughs> to knock that off. And the next day, they were back in the office and still calling it Skunk Works.
Inside Skunkworks is produced inside the Skunkworks in Palmdale, California. Our next episode will be released on April 8th. Stay tuned for a sneak peek. To see a full list of Kelly's 14 rules, visit our show notes at LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunkworks. And I remember I stepped out of the briefing and I go, wow. And my boss goes, follow me. And we went up these flights of stairs. And I remember looking out over and seeing that arrowhead. The actual words in my head were far out.